Welcome to the Emergency Traffic Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the Emergency Traffic Podcast, where we examine the one Meridian Plaza fire that occurred in 1991. Join Doug, Dirk, and our special guest star, Jay Gordon Routley, a retired fire chief from the City of Montreal, who wrote the report in 1991 on this catastrophic event that was a landmark in the fire service history. The largest high-rise fire in North American history at the time. Three firefighters died, eight others had to be rescued. This event resulted in 12 alarms and eventually it burned itself up to the 30th floor where sprinklers controlled it and stopped progression so that firefighters could extinguishers. Multiple system failure created obstacles for suppression, including delayed alarm call, improperly calibrated pressure reducing and restricting valves in standpipes, and a complete power failure, uh, forcing firefighters to go up the stairs to the 28th floor for this operation with over 300 firefighters responding. Listen and learn. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to the Emergency Traffic Podcast, where we talk about firefighter and paramedic line of duty deaths to learn from these tragic events and potentially prevent them from happening again in the future. I'm your host, Paul, and I'm joined by my co-hosts today, Doug and Dirk. And we also have our guest uh, co-host, retired chief, Jay Gordon Routley, formerly of the Montreal Fire Department, who was the author of the report for the episode we're going to discuss today, which is a high-rise incident. It's a little bit older, happened in 1991, but it was well known in the fire service and well studied and and a bit of a groundswell. A lot of uh, stuff came out of it. And so that's why we're going to talk about it today, which is the uh, One Meridian uh, Plaza fire. First of all, what's new? Uh, Gordon, welcome. You're visiting us from Florida there, uh, working away on some consulting, playing some bocce ball, enjoying retirement. Yeah, I'm trying to adjust to retirement. Perfect, perfect. Well, as long as you got some jobs to work on on the side, I find it uh, it's enjoyable. Yeah, but it's really it's still tough every time I hear a siren. I want to go. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. <laughs> nice, Doug. How are you doing? I'm good. It's nice to be here with Chief Routley again and listen to all his wisdom from one of these major events that was way before I joined the fire service. But I've heard the name spoken lots. One Meridian there. But I do have to say, Paul, between the two retired guys in this group here, one of them's doing it right, and the other one lives in Lacombe. <laughs> I, spent three, I spent three weeks on Vancouver Island. That was okay, but yeah, yeah we probably should be in Arizona or something. <laughs> no, it's nice to be back. Nice to, I like talking about this stuff, so happy to be here. No kidding. Yeah, all of us do, right? And we chat away at night on ideas and stuff we come yeah. across and get angry at each other. It's all good. Dirk, you're in the in the new studio a la Dirk. My goodness, he's got the back wall done and he's got all the recording stuff. How are you? I got so many collectibles and I didn't know what to do with it. So I kind of got banned from my basement a couple of years ago. So uh-huh. I moved everything upstairs in my son's former room and now I transfer transforming it into a workout room with a squat uh, squat rag, my bike, and then the rest goes on the wall, all the firefighter collectibles. And then I have my soccer stuff too, but I don't know what to do with that. So I'm, I'm still kind of, <laughs> I'm yeah. working on it. So uh, I'm not planning on doing any podcasting by myself because I, I like this forum, this you know, 
set up and yeah happy to see uh chief uh Gornier and uh and doug and paul and yeah, excited to do this Dirk, just one thing. Don't don't mix the fire collectibles with the soccer collectibles because they're incompatible. Yeah, I know. The colors don't mix. I, uh, the colors don't uh, match. Yeah. <laughs> I have a hazmat situation. <laughs> hey, did you see that one today? Uh, L.A. County? Yeah. Uh, 11, yeah. 10 firefighters injured at a, a semi-tractor blew up. Yeah. yeah. Some people I've saying never, it might have been an NGL tractor, they think. Yeah, I've never seen one blow like that. I mean, yeah. I've always, I've always, you know, kind of had the feeling that that could happen, but I've never seen it happen like that. Yeah, usually sort of vent, you know, vent and burn, and eventually, yeah. the cylinder maybe fails. But here they were just early into it. There was lots of some sort of a smoke or a cloud around it, and then boom. Yeah. It's funny because just a few days, or well, a couple of weeks ago now, in uh, Mo in uh, Mongolia, uh, Ulaanbaatar. They yeah. had tons of videos and same thing. The trailer just started on fire and all the flammable liquid that blew up. It basically set a high rise on fire. And yeah, Mongolia. It was a yeah. traffic accident. Yeah, uh, and it was a propane truck. Exactly. And uh, yeah. three firefighters and three civilians died there. So it's, yeah, it happens, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, we better move on here because some guys got to work in a few hours. I'm not the retired guys. We're okay. I have happy hour in a few hours, so I need to make sure I make it to that. Okay. Uh, a fire on the 22nd floor of the 38-story Meridian Bank building, also known as One Meridian Plaza, was reported to the Philadelphia Fire Department on February 23, 1991, at approximately 2040 hours, and it burned for more than 19 hours. The fire caused three firefighter fatalities and injuries to 24 firefighters. The 12 alarms that brought 51 engine companies, 15 ladder companies, 11 specialized units, and over 300 firefighters to the scene. Wow, 12 alarms. It was the largest high-rise office building fire in modern American history, completely consuming eight floors of the building and it was controlled only when it reached a floor that was protected by automatic sprinklers. You're all good with this, uh, Chief? You got your script or whatever? And yep, okay. You know it anyway, you wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a while ago. You know. Yeah, yeah, it was a while ago. I don't remember it well. <laughs> I bet you do. Okay. The building was a 38-story high-rise office building located at the corner of 15th Street and South Penn Square in the heart of downtown Philadelphia. In an area of high-rise and mid-rise structures, on the east side, the building is attached to a 34-story Girard Trust building, and it's surrounded by several other high-rise buildings. The front of the building faces City Hall. One Meridian Plaza had three underground levels and 36 above-ground occupiable floors, two mechanical floors, which were 12 and 38, and two rooftop helipads. The building was rectangular in shape, approximately 243 feet long by 92 feet wide, uh, approximately 22,000 square feet per, per, uh, is that per floor? I guess so, yep. With roughly 17,000 net usable square feet per floor with elevators and service rooms and stuff. Work for construction began in 1968, was completed and approved for occupancy in 1973. 
construction was classified by the Philadelphia Department of Licenses and Inspections as equivalent of a BOCA type 1B construction, which required three hour fire rated building columns, two hour uh, rated horizontal beams, floor and ceiling systems, one hour rated corridors and tenant separations. Shafts, including stairways, are to be required with two hour fire rated construction and roofs must have a one hour fire rated assembly. The building frame was structural steel with concrete floors poured over metal decks. All structural steel and floor assemblies were protected by spray-on fireproofing material. The exterior of the building was covered by granite curtain wall panels with glass windows attached to the perimeter floor girders and spandrels. The building utilizes a central core design, although one side of the core is adjacent to the south exterior wall. The core area is approximately 38 feet wide by 124 feet long, contained two stairways, four banks of elevators, two HVAC supply shafts, bathroom and utility chases, and telephone and electrical risers. The building had three enclosed stairways of concrete masonry construction. Each stairway serviced all 38 floors. Locations of two stairways within the building core shift horizontally three or four times between the ground and 38th floor to accommodate the elevator shafts, machine rooms of the four elevator banks. Both these stairways are equipped with standpipe risers. Adjacent to the stairway enclosures are separate utility and HVAC shafts. There are pipe and duct penetration through the shafts and stairway enclosure walls. The penetrations are unprotected around sleeved pipes and fire dampers are not installed in the HVAC ducts penetrating the fire-resistant wall, rated wall assemblies. This effectively created many openings between the utility shafts and the individual floors, primarily in the plenum above the ceilings, as well as between the shafts and at the stairway enclosures. There's a third enclosed stairway that's located in the east end of the building. This stairway attached the floors of Meridian Plaza to the corresponding floors of Girard Trust Building. Adjacent to the east stairway is an additional enclosed utility shaft, which has pipe and duct penetrations through the shaft and enclosure walls. Elevator service is provided by four zoned elevator banks. As identified A through D, the elevator shafts are constructed of concrete masonry extend from the first floor or lower levels to the highest floor served by the, each individual elevator bank. Heating, ventilating, and air conditioning. The HIVAC system was comprised of Floor handling systems. Two systems are located in the 38th floor mechanical uh, room and service the east and west halves of the upper floors. Two systems are located on the 12th floor mechanical room and service the east and west halves of the lower floors. The bathroom utility piping extends through the 38th floor pipe chases that are formed by this uh, space between the two walls. These pipe chases transfer location as the bathroom locations change from floor to floor. Uh, upon a sample examination of the pipe chases, it was found that floor penetrations were not closed or sealed to maintain the integrity of fire resistance of the floor or ceiling assemblies. Always a bad thing when those pipe chases aren't closed off. Electrical and communication risers. The electrical and telephone risers are enclosed in separate rooms on each floor. The rooms are located directly above one another and are intended to function as vertical shafts with rated separations required at the horizontal penetrations from the shafts into the floor and ceiling spaces at each level. Within the telephone electrical rooms, unprotected penetrations of the floor assemblies allow conduits 
and exposed wires to travel from floor to floor. Several breaches of the fire resistance and rated construction were observed in the walls separating the electrical and telephone rooms from the ceiling plenums and the occupied spaces on each floor. The building had emergency power, two separate electrical substations, and backed up by a generator. The two sources of power are arranged so that the load would automatically transfer to the second source upon failure of the first. Electrical power and four, uh, for Meridian 1 and 4 adjacent buildings is distributed from the basement of 1414 South Penn Square. The electrical service enters via the basement from adjoining building and is distributed to the 12th and 38th floor mechanical rooms via the electrical risers in the building core. From the 12th and 38th floor mechanical rooms, electrical power is distributed to the major mechanical systems and a bus through a bus bar riser, which services distribution panels on the individual floors. There was a three point or 340 kilowatt natural gas fire generator located in the 12th floor mechanical room. The generator was supplied sized to supply power for emergency lighting in the fire alarm system. The fire pump is also on the 12th floor and one car of each bank of elevators. It should be I'm supposed to power all those, the fire pump and the elevator, one bank. The generator's fuel was supplied by the building's natural gas service. The generator was, was not required by building code, but since the building's electrical power was supplied by two separate substations, but they, they had it anyway. The generator was reported to have been tested weekly. The last test date was January 20th, almost four weeks before the fire. The maintenance records indicate that problems were encountered during engine startup under load conditions at the time. During a detailed inspection following the test, the damaged part was discovered and replaced after the repair. The generator was started without a load and appeared to work properly. No subsequent tests were performed to determine if the problems persisted under load. Records of earlier maintenance and test activities suggest that load tests were performed only occasionally. Tests and maintenance records indicate a long history of maintenance problems with the emergency generator system. Many of these problems became manifest or during or immediately after conducting tests under load. Uh, yeah, you know there's something going on there when you have these recurring problems and you don't fix them. You also know that the guy who wrote that section of the report was really hung up on electrical stuff. <laughs> hey, uh, on a high rise, it's handy to have a bit of power when you're fighting a fire. Yeah. <clears throat> Especially if you get an electric fire pump. Yeah. Fire protection systems at the time of construction, the building code in Philadelphia only required a local fire assist alarm system with manual stations at each, at each exit and smoke detectors in the supply and return air shafts. There were hose stations supplied for domestic water service and portable fire extinguishers were required. Dry standpipes were installed for fire department use. Below ground, they were required to be provided with automatic sprinklers. As a result, of local code changes, several improvements to the fire protection systems were made in the years following construction. In 1981, the Philadelphia Department of Licenses implemented amendments to the fire code which were intended to address the life safety of high-rise building occupants. These requirements included the installation of stair shaft identification signs, provisions to permit the stairway re-entry, and installation of smoke detectors in common areas uh, in the path of exit, access to egress. The common areas provision of the code was intended to address corridors and exit passageways from multiple tenant floors. The smoke detector requirements were interpreted in such a way that a single tenant open plan floor 
were only required to have detectors installed at the exits. The entire floor, although open, was not considered a common area because it was one tenant. Smoke detectors were also installed in the return air plenum adjacent to return air shaft intakes in each corner of the building. These required that the building owners file permits for this work within one year of the code change. City records did not indicate when this was performed in this particular building or if it was inspected and approved subsequently. But at the time of the construction, it was equipped with a coded manual for fire alarm system with pole stations installed adjacent to each of the three exit stairwells on each floor. Smoke detection was provided in the major supply and return air ducts at the mechanical floor levels. After 81 fire code amendments were in enacted, the hardware on stairway doors were required, was required to allow access from the stairs back to floor areas or to be unlocked automatically in the event of a fire alarm so you couldn't get locked in and out. The Meridian, One Meridian Plaza was granted a variance from this provision and generally had unlocked doors every, only every three floors. Approximately one and a half years before the fire, a public address system was installed throughout the building. This was operable from the lobby desk and had the capacity of addressing all floors, stairways, elevator machine rooms, and elevators. Two-way communication was possible with elevators and the elevator machine rooms. As additional detect devices and systems were installed, they were connected to the fire alarm system to sound through the single stroke bells initially installed with the manual fire alarm system. The smoke detector and water flow signals were assigned to their own codes to allow enunciation not only to the lobby, but throughout the building for those members of the building staff who knew the codes. So you could interpret what it was trying to say. Occupant use standpipe system, which was connected to the domestic water, supplied in two outlets per floor with 100 feet of inch and a half hose and a nozzle. The hose cabinets were located in the corridors on each floor. The dry standpipe was originally, a dry standpipe system was originally installed with six inch risers in the west and center stair towers and outlets to two and a half inch fire department hose line at each floor level. This system was converted to a wet riser in 1988 to supply the automatic sprinklers on some of the upper floors. An eight inch water supply was uh, provided to deliver water to the two 750 GPM electric fire pumps, one in the basement and one on the 12th floor. The basement pump supplied the lower floors and the 12th floor pump supplied the upper floors. On November 1988, a Board of Building Standards decision permitted both zones to be served by a fire, common fire department connection as part of a plan that would provide for the installation of automatic sprinklers by November of 1993. Due to the height of the zones and the installation of fire pumps, pressures exceeded the 100 PSI limited, limit permitted by NFPA 14, installation of sandpipes and hose systems, because of the lower floors would have too much pressure on them. So pressure restricting devices, which limit the discharge through standpipe outlets by restricting the orifice size, were installed on the mezzanine and second floor levels and on floors 26 through 30. Pressure reducing valves, which regulate both the pressure and the discharge pressure under variable flows, were installed on floors 13 through 25. These are going to be important later. Both, uh, both these devices prevent dangerous discharge pressures from hose outlets at the lower floors of each standpipe zone. The Philadelphia Fire Department investigators report the plan submitted at the time the standpipes were converted did not include that PRVs were to be installed. So the Fire Department had no idea in their plans 
that there would be PRVs or restrictions in the sprinklers. Only the service floors located below grade were protected by automatic sprinklers at the time of construction. Conversion dry stamp pipe to a wet system with fire pumps facilitated the automatic sprinklers throughout the building, which was the plan eventually. At the request of selected tenants, sprinklers were installed on several floors uh, during the renovations, including 30th, 31st, 40th, 34th, and 35th floors, and parts of floor 11 and 15. Limited service sprinklers connected just to the domestic water supply system were installed in part of the 37th floor. The building owners had plans to install sprinklers on additional floors as they were renovated. Enough of me talking, all the technical stuff. But it's important to what happened, right? Yeah, it is. The systems were the were the big factor, and this was this building was fairly typical of what was going on in the eighties. That a lot of buildings that had been built, um, you know, with with just dry standpipes and no sprinklers, were in the process of being converted uh, to retrofit sprinkler systems. Um, and in many cases, you know, it was a floor by floor thing. Um, and this was a high class building and the, the tenants of this building were Meridian Bank, which is a big, you know, big operation. A lot of lawyers and Philadelphia is famous for lawyers. <laughs> um, you know, so this was, this was a high class building right downtown, right across the street from city hall, which is a, a, a very prominent landmark in downtown Philadelphia, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't get any more center city uh, than this place. So everybody knew the building. Um, and it was, you know, there, there are a lot of faults with it, but it was, you know, it, it was, it was a class building. It wasn't, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't in bad shape. Right. Which kind of probably uh, fooled everybody when they discovered these problems. Like, first of all, no power and water issues. Yeah. So. Well, now that we're done listening to Paul, Paul talk about the building, we can talk about the actual fire that happened. So there was yeah. a delayed report, uh, approximately 20, 23 hours on February 23rd, 91. A smoke detector was activated on the 22nd floor of the One Meridian Plaza building. The activated detector is believed to have been located at the entrance to the return air shaft in the northeast corner of the building. At the time, there were three people in the building, an engineer and two security guards. The alarm sounded throughout the building and elevator cars automatically returned to the lobby. The building engineer investigated the alarm using an elevator on manual control to go to the 22nd floor. The central station monitoring company that served the building reportedly called the guard desk in the lobby to report the alarm. The call came in before the engineer reached the fire floor and the alarm company was told that the source of the alarm was being investigated. The alarm company did not notify the fire department at that time. When the elevator doors opened at the 22nd floor, the engineer encountered heavy smoke and heat. Weird! The detector that told you that there was smoke and heat and you find smoke and heat. Unable to reach the buttons or leave the elevator car to seek an exit, the building engineer became trapped. He was able to use his portable radio to call the security guard at the lobby desk requesting assistance. Following the trapped engineer's instructions, the security guard in the lobby recalled the elevator to the ground floor using the Phase 2 firefighter safety feature. 
The second security guard monitored the radio transmissions while taking a break on the 30th floor. This guard initially mistook the fire alarm for a security alarm, believing that he'd activate a tenant's, activated a tenant's security alarm while making his rounds. He evacuated the building via the stairs when he heard the building engineer confirm there was a fire on the 22nd floor. The roving guard reported that as he descended from the 30th floor, the stairway was filling with smoke. He reached the ground level and met the engineer at the other, and the other security guard on the street in front of the building. The Philadelphia Fire Department re report on the incident states that the lobby guard recalled the alarm, called the alarm monitoring service to confirm that there was an actual fire in the building when the engineer radioed to her from the 22nd floor. After meeting outside and accounting for each other's whereabouts, the three building personnel realized that they had not yet called the fire department. The first call received by the Philadelphia Fire Department came in from a passerby who used a pay telephone. Those used to be these things on the side of the, on the corner that you'd like put money in and can make a phone call before everybody had a cell phone in their pocket. Old. I know it's I've old. I've heard of those. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the call reported smoke coming from the large building, but was unable to provide the exact address. While this call was still in progress at approximately 20, 20 27 hours a call was received from the alarm monitoring service reporting a fire alarm at one Meridian Plaza. And it's funny that Doug did this intro and I'm doing the initial response, even though he's the response guy. <laughs> <laughs> right. He <laughs> loves it. Uh, so the Philadelphia Fire Department dispatched the first alarm at uh, 202700 hours, consisting of four engines and two ladder companies with two battalion chiefs. The first arriving unit, Engine 43, reported heavy smoke with fire showing from one window at approximately the mid-section of the building at 20-31 hours. A security guard told the first arriving battalion chief that the fire was on the 22nd floor. Battalion Chief 5 ordered a second alarm at 20-33 hours. Uh, while one battalion chief assumed command of the incident at the lobby level, the other battalion chief organized an attack team to go up to the fire floor. The battalion chief directed the attack team to take the low riser elevators up the 11th floor and walk from there. Shortly after the battalion chief and the attack team reached the 11th floor, there was a total loss of electrical power in the building. This resulted when intense heat from the fire floor penetrated the electrical room enclosure. The heat caused the cable insulation to melt, resulting in a short between the conductor and the conduit in both the primary and secondary power feed and the loss of both commercial power sources. The emergency generator should have activated automatically, but it failed to produce electric power. These events left the entire building without electricity for the duration of the incident in spite of several efforts to restore, restore commercial power and to obtain power from the generator, which explains what you said uh, chief that somebody uh, really liked the electrical part of this building <laughs> so this uh, total power failure had a major impact on the firefighting operation the lack of lightning made it necessary for firefighters to carry out suppression operation in complete darkness using only battery powered lights since there was no power to operate elevators firefighters were forced to hand carry all suppression equipment including scba replacement cylinders up the stairs to the staging area that was established on the 20th floor. In addition, personnel had to climb at least 20 floors to relieve fellow firefighters and attack crews, increasing the time required for relief forces to arrive. 
This was a problem for the duration of the incident, as each relief crew had was already tired from the climb before they could take over suppression duties from the crews that were previously committed. And uh, back in the day when there was telephone booths, the flashlights weren't as nice as they are now either. They were heavy yeah, yeah, and they didn't right. light very well. Yeah, uh, the batteries didn't last very long. Do you remember those old, the wheat, was it wheat yeah. or something, flashlights? Yeah. My yeah, dad had lights. one in the car, right? It was big. Yeah. yeah. In, in Richelieu, Richelieu, Quebec, where he yeah. was fire chief. As the initial okay. attackers made their way toward the 22nd floor, they began to encounter smoke in the stairway. At the 22nd floor, they found the west stair tower door locked. The door was already warped and blistering from the heat, and heavy fire could be seen through the door's wire glass window. An inch and three-quarter, or 44-millimeter hand line, was stretched up the stairway from a standpipe connection on the floor below and operated through the window while a ladder company worked on forcing the door. It took several minutes before the door could be forced open and an attempt could be made to advance onto the fire floor with the inch and three-quarter attack line. The crews were not able to penetrate onto the 22nd floor due to intense heat and low water pressure that they were able to obtain from their hose line. An entry is also made on the 21st floor where firefighters were able to see the fire on the floor above through the open air convenience stair. They attempted to use an occupant hose line to attack the fire, but could not obtain water from that outlet. They then connected another inch and three-quarter attack line to the standpipe outlet in the stairway, but they could not obtain sufficient pressure to attack the flames. A tactical command post was established on the 21st floor, and a staging area was set up on floor 20. By this time, fire was visible from several windows on the 22nd floor, and crews outside were evacuating the area around the building and hooking up supply lines to the building's downpipe connections. As flames broke through several more windows around a major portion of the fire floor, the floor above was subject to auto exposure from flames lapping up the side of the building. Additional alarms were called to bring personnel and equipment to the scene for a large-scale fire suppression operation. As the fire developed on the 22nd floor, smoke, heat, and toxic gases began moving through the building. Vertical fire extension resulted from unprotected openings in floor and shaft assemblies, failure of fire-resistant rated floor assemblies, and the lapping of flames through windows on the outside of the building. They had water supply problems. The normal attack hose lines used by the Philadelphia Fire Department incorporate inch and three-quarter hose lines with automatic fog nozzles designed to provide variable gallonage at the 100 PSI nozzle pressure. Just wondering if Chief probably has anything to add over the fire development part. I know that was sort of his science. So Fire was burning in, in some, some pretty rich property. It was lawyers' offices, um, bookcases, wood paneling. So there, there was plenty of fuel on, on that fire for for the fire to develop and at a, at, at a large area so the fire was having a free reign uh because the fire department couldn't couldn't get water on it and you know the, there's there's the problem with the the nozzles they were using and the lines they were using and the standpipe outlets but the bottom line was they couldn't get an effective stream from any hose line they had 
And I remember talking to the guys who were on the floor below the fire. There was an open convenience stairway because the same the same firm occupied both floors. So they had their own stairway between two floors. And they said they were standing looking into the opening. I could see the fire and they didn't have enough water pressure to, to hit it from the floor below. And, uh, you know, so you know, add to that the fact that you're on the 22nd floor of a building after you've climbed up 22nd floors in the darkness where nothing's working. And now you can, you can see the fire. You can almost touch it. And you can't hit it. Okay, yeah, great for that. I saw a little caller commentary on the fire. Like you say, the fuel was uh, absolutely plentiful, and there was air because it was coming up from below, right? Yeah, and it was breaking windows. So, right. uh, you know, as it yeah, broke windows, good. it just kept sustaining itself. Good chimney. Okay, Doug, thanks. Go for All it. right. The normal tacos... Lines used by the Philadelphia Fire Department incorporate inch and three-quarter hose lines with automatic fog nozzles designed to provide variable gallonage at the 100 PSI nozzle pressure. Uh, Pressure-reducing valves in the standpipe outlets provided less than 60 PSI discharge pressure, which was insufficient to develop effective fire streams. The pressure-reducing valves, or PRVs, were field-adjustable using special tools. However, not until several hours into the fire did a technician knowledgeable in the adjustment technique arrive at the fire scene and adjust the pressure on several of the PRVs in the stairways. When the PRVs were originally installed, the pressure settings were improperly adjusted. Index valves marked on the valves did not correspond directly to discharge pressures. To perform adjustments, adjustments the factory field personnel had to refer to tables and printed insulation instructions installation instructions to provide the proper setting for each floor level several fire department pumpers were connected to the fdc to charge the standpipe in system in an attempt to increase the water pressure the improperly set prvs effectively prevented the increased pressure in the standpipes from being discharged through the valves i mean the problem wasn't they weren't putting enough pressure in <laughs> they didn't know that though so they just tried to put more pressure in and those early automatic nozzles, I mean, if you didn't have close to 100 pounds coming in, uh, you would get a you know, really low flow. It would look okay because it's automatic, but the, the GPM was so low. And I remember that uh, you know, being a big problem. I was selling automatic nozzles almost around then. What, 91? Yeah, yeah I was. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and they had the volume selector ring because they were worried about too much volume on them as well because they could open up and put you on your ass um but you know that's kind of why we don't want to go that way with these nozzles now you can imagine the frustration that was going on among the firefighters because they you know they they had three or four uh pumpers hooked up to hydrants connected to the to the fire department connections on the building and they're pumping for all it's worth and they're still not getting water up above the limited water supply prevented significant progress in fire, fighting the fire and limited interior forces from operating from defensive positions in the stairwells. During the next hour, the fire spread to the 23rd and 24th floors, primarily through auto exposure, while firefighters were unable to make entry in onto these floors due to deteriorating heat and smoke conditions and the lack of water pressure in their hose lines. 
Windows on the 22nd floor broke out, and the 23rd and 24th floor windows were subject to auto exposure from the flames lapping up the sides of the building. On the street below, pedestrians were cleared from the area because of the falling glass and debris as more and more windows were broken out by the fire. Additional hose lines were connected to the standpipe connections, uh, attempting to boost the water pressure in the system. However, the, the issue was the design of the PRVs that didn't allow higher pressures to reach the hose streams. Didn't matter how many they put in, it still wouldn't let it get past. Additional alarms were requested to bring a five-alarm assignment to the scene. So as the uh, firefighters attempted to make entry to the burning floors from the stairways, heavy smoke continued to build up within the stairs, shaft and bank down from the upper floors. An engine company was assigned to attempt to open a door or a hatch to ventilate the stairways at the roof level to allow the smoke and heat to escape. A captain and two firefighters from Engine 11 started, started up the center stair from the 22nd floor uh, with this assignment. Engine 11 subsequently radioed that they had left the stairway and were disoriented in heavy smoke on the 30th floor. Attempts to make a direct uh, to direct the crew by radio to one of the other stairways. Um, shortly thereafter, a radio message was received at the command post from Engine 11's captain requesting permission to break the window for ventilation. This was followed moments later by a message from the crew member of Engine 11 reporting that the captain's down. Approval was given to break the window and rescue efforts were initiated to search for the crew. Search teams were sent from below and a helicopter was requested to land a team on the roof. The search teams were able to reach the 30th floor, which was uh, enveloped in heavy smoke, but were unable to find the missing firefighters. They then searched the floors above without success. An eight-member search team became disoriented and ran out of air in the mechanical area on the 38th floor while trying to find an exit to the roof. They were rescued by the team that they had landed on the roof and were transported back to the ground level by the helicopter. Several attempts were made to continue the search until helicopter operations on the roof had to be suspended due to the poor visibility and the thermal drafts caused by the fire and heat. The helicopter crew then attempted an exterior search using the helicopter searchlight and at uh, 01-1700 hours, located a broken window on the southeast corner of the 28th floor in an area that could not have been seen from any of the surrounding streets. Another search team was assembled and finally located three missing members just inside the broken window on the 28th floor at approximately 2.15. Uh, at that time, the fire was burning on the 24th, 25th floor and extending to the 26th. The victims were removed to the medical triage area on the 20th floor, but resuscitation efforts were unsuccessful and they were pronounced dead at the scene. An estimated three to four hours had elapsed, uh, time had uh, since gone by uh, that they were reported being in trouble and all had succumbed to smoke inhalation. Three deceased members of Engine Company 11 were Captain David P. Holcomb at age 25, uh, 52, Firefighter Phyllis McAllister, age 43, and Firefighter James A. Campbell, 29. Prior to being assigned to this task, the crew had walked up to the fire area 
wearing their full protective clothing and SCBA and carrying extra equipment. It is believed that they had started out with full SCBA cylinders, but it's not known if they became disoriented from the heavy smoke in the stairway, encountered trouble with heat buildup, or were exhausted by the efforts to climb 28 floors. Some combination of these factors could have caused their predicament. Unfortunately, even after breaking the window, they did not find relief from the small conditions, which were extremely heavy in the part of the building. Maybe the chief wants to say something before I continue. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a really, well, three guys lost. It's a pretty critical situation. And I remember very clearly sitting with the battalion chief who sent them on that mission. And he said, you know, they they were in the stairway at the 22nd floor. They couldn't make any progress. And the, the smoke in the stairway was starting to bank down and it was getting to the 22nd floor. So they're saying to themselves, well, we got to vent the stairway to get the smoke out of here or, or, or we're not going to be able to stay here. And the crew from Engine 11 had just arrived. They were fresh. They had full air cylinders. And he said, I turned to the captain and said, see if you can make it up to the top of the stairs and open it up. And he said, I wasn't thinking that we're on the 22nd floor and this is a 38 story building. I was just thinking I need somebody to open the stairway. And he said, later <laughs> said, that's a long way to climb up in smoke with breathing apparatus with a limited air supply and he said if you know if i had thought it out it wasn't a good decision but it was in the you know in the dark in the in the moment and i could relate to it because i did the same thing at a fire in phoenix four or five years earlier we had a fire on about the 12th or 12th or 13th floor of a 20 some story building and i said no problem I'll go up and vent the stairway. And I made it up about five floors. And I said, I'm beat. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> and, you know, so I, you know, I, I empathized so much with him because he was, he was really having a hard time, uh, you know, with it, with his own feelings over that. Well, thank you for your insights there, chief. Um, so the continuing efforts to improve water supply, uh, because of the difficulty in obtaining an adequate water supply, a decision was made to stretch five-inch lines up the stairs to supply interior attack lines. The first line was stretched up the west number one stairwell to the 24th floor level and was operational by 2.15, approximately six hours into the fire. At 2.21, a 12th alarm was sounded to stretch a second line in the center number two stair. At 4.55, a third five-inch line was ordered stretched in the east number three stair. The operation in the east stair was discontinued at the 17th floor level at 6 o'clock. While the five-inch lines were being stretched, a sprinkler contractor arrived at the scene and began manually adjusting the pressure-reducing valves on the standpipe connection. This improved the discharge pressure in the hose supply by the stamp, uh, via the standpipe system, finally producing normal handline streams for the interior fire suppression crews. I uh, wonder what normal means, 100 PSI or just make it work. Anyhow, at this yeah. point, however, the fire 
involved several floors and could not be contained with manual hose streams. So the firefighting operations were suspended. All interior firefighting efforts were halted after almost 11 hours of uninterrupted fire in the building. Consultation with the structural engineer and structural damage observed by the units operating in the building led to the belief that there was a possibility of a pancake structural collapse of the fire damaged floor. Bearing this risk in mind, along with loss of three personnel and the lack of progress against the fire, despite having secured adequate water pressure and flow for interior fire streams, an order was given to evacuate the building at 700 hours on February 24th. At the time of the evacuation, the fire appeared to be under control on the 22nd through 24 floors. It continued to burn to floors 25 and 26 and was spreading upwards. There was a heavy smoke condition throughout most of the upper floors. The evacuation was completed at 7.30. After evacuating the building, portable master streams directed at the fire building from several exposures, including Girard Building number 1 and 1 Center Plaza across the street to the west, where the only firefighting efforts left in place. Wow. Yeah. Can you imagine, you know, at seven in the morning at a downtown high end skyscraper going, you know what? We got it. This is it. We got to leave. And, you know, a pancake collapse due to fire damage, which we're all more familiar with now after uh, New York City, uh, that was unheard of. I mean, it wasn't going to happen. That, that's not possible. It's all fire protected with the spray on stuff and steel and of course now we know that that, that doesn't uh, actually true and this the steel structure really took a beating inside there after the fire there were there were major beams and and girders that that were sagging all the way down to the floor so you you could just barely crawl uh under them on the floor to work around uh the stair the, the stairway enclosure uh was ruptured in places um you know from from steel expansion um so there there was a tremendous amount of heat trapped inside the building that you know that eventually got through all of that fireproofing and uh and beat up the structural steel which created a a really interesting question after the fire was over of can this be fixed <laughs> right yeah I'll, I'll post some of those pictures from your report on the on our social media feeds but yeah it's it's unbelievable to to look at these floor beams and stuff and they're bent right down like 10 feet down uh yeah into the middle of the floor crazy the the other thing that's interesting is philadelphia fire department is a big resource rich very experienced fire department that wasn't used to getting beaten beaten like this um but they had the resources imagine the manpower it takes to stretch a five inch line up 22 or 23 floors and they just kept calling more guys and calling more guys and calling more guys and calling more guys and doing it but it was like no matter what they did it didn't work <laughs> Yeah, very frustrating. I think that would be, be a tough thing to handle, especially being in a department like Philadelphia where, I mean, a structure fire is not a major event for Philadelphia. A high-risk fire yeah. is, but but when you're, yeah. you think you've 
kind of not done it all and seen it all, but you think you're fairly experienced and all of a sudden you come up against the one call that you're like, I don't know what to do now. That would be a very hard yeah. kind of thing to deal with. Yeah. 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 So you can just call a timeout and the fire stops and you guys can have a conference and figure out what to do. Like it's lots of thinking on the fly and everything you're thinking of and trying isn't working. Eventually you just go, I don't know anymore. I, I read yeah, that I, the book there, the Grenfell Tower, uh, show yeah. me the bodies or something. And uh, the fire officers commented in there. It's like, we, we didn't, we didn't have a clue what to do. We didn't even have, we didn't even have perception of what was happening because they're the, the, the commander's probably in the building. He said, I didn't even see what was going on outside, you know, yeah. same here. Yeah. I, I had the, the, the privilege of, I, I was pretty good friends with most of the senior guys in the Philadelphia fire department. In fact, you know, they, you know, they, <laughs> they called me and said, yeah, we, we, we need somebody to, to come and help us out with, figuring out what happened um so i was called in two or three days after and i remember sitting with them and just the feeling that they had where you know we took everything we had and threw it at this fire and nothing worked yeah the fire was stopped when it reached the 30th floor it was which was protected by an automatic sprinklers those good old automatic sprinklers as the fire ignited different points in this floor through the floor assembly by auto exposure through the windows, 10 sprinkler heads activated and the fires were extinguished at the point of penetration. The vertical spread in the fire was stopped solely by the action of the automatic sprinklers, which was being supplied by the fire permit pumpers. The 30th floor was not heavily damaged by fire and most contents were salvageable. The fire was declared under control at 3.01 p.m. on February 24th. 1991. That's like that high school we were at, Doug, where the, the fire broke through the high school in seven places and the sprinklers activated and uh, they, they stopped the fire. You know, we were just doing overhaul after. Prior to deciding to evacuate the building, the firefighters noticed significant structural displacement occurring in the stair enclosures. A command officer indicated that cracks large enough to place a man's fist through had developed at one point. And I'll put some pictures on the social media. One of the granite exterior wall panels on the east stair enclosure was dislodged by thermal expansion of the steel framing behind it. After the fire, there was evidence significant structural damage to the horizontal steel members and floor sections on most of the fire damaged floors. Beams and girders sagged and twisted as much as three, some as much as three feet under severe exposure and fissures developed in the reinforced concrete floor assemblies in many places. Despite this extraordinary exposure, the columns continued to support their loads without obvious damage. And then the report kind of goes into uh, various sectors of the, the operation here. So I thought it was worth talking about that. Incident command, during 19 hours of firefighting, the Philadelphia Fire Department committed approximately 316 personnel operating with 51 engine companies, 15 ladder companies, and 11 specialized units, including EMS to this 12 alarm incident. It was managed by 11 battalion chiefs, 15 additional chief officers over, under the overall command of the fire commissioners. All apparatus and personnel were supplied without requesting mutual aid. Off-duty personnel were recalled uh, to staff reserve companies to maintain protections for the city, 
the Philadelphia uses an incident management system known within the department as Philadelphia Incident Command. It is based on ICS Incident Command System that is taught at the National Fire Academy. In fact, there was some, half of the instructors at the academy were Philadelphia guys. Ah, because it's handy. Great. Yeah, excellent. The, uh, the standard operating procedures for a high-rise incident were implemented at the time. Incident commanders were confronted with multiple simultaneous system failures. As a result, command and control decisions were based on the need to innovate and to find alternative approaches to compensate for the normal systems that firefighters would have relied on to bring this incident to a more successful conclusion. Philadelphia Fire Department tactical priorities in high-rise focus on locating and evacuating exposed occupants, making an aggressive interior attack to confine the fire to the area or at least floor of origin. Confronted with total darkness, impaired vertical mobility because the elevators were inoperable, water supply deficiencies which made initial attack efforts ineffective, vertical fire spread via unprotected interior openings and in external auto exposure, worsening heat and smoke conditions in the stairways, the tactical focus shifted to finding something, perhaps anything, which like the, you know, a vertical standpipe. I've heard of guys doing a horizontal standpipe with large diameter hose, but a vertical standpipe, 24 floors is amazing. When engines crew, 11's crew reported their predicament, the priority changed to attempting to locate and rescue the trapped firefighters. Unfortunately, these efforts were in vain and nearly proved tragic when eight other firefighters conducting search and rescue became disoriented and ran out of air in the 38th floor mechanical room and nearly perished while trying to locate an exit on the roof. The rescue of these members was extremely fortunate in a situation that could have resulted in even a greater tragedy. As is often the case, communications at such a large incident presented a serious challenge maintaining effective command and control. The loss of electrical power plunged the entire building into darkness, forcing firefighters to rely on portable lights, impacted uh, even face-to-face -face communications by making it difficult for people to identify with whom they were talking. Radio comms was also affected by the significant duration of the event. A field communications van was brought to the scene early in the incident with supplies, spare radios and batteries, but it was a major challenge to provide charged batteries for all the radios that were in use at the incident. To ease congestion on fire ground radio channels, cellular telephones were used to communicate between command posts in the lobby and the staging area on the 20th floor. Several other communications and functions took advantage of cellular telephone capabilities. The logistics section was responsible for several functions. Can you imagine the logistics for 350 firefighters in a high-rise? Refilling SCBA, supplying radios, stretching the five-inch line. These were monumental endeavors which required the, labor, required the labor of approximately 100 firefighters. Equipment supplies were in constant demand, including hand lights and portable lighting, deluge sets in the neighboring building across the streets, nozzles and other equipment. The staging area on the 20th floor also included medical and rehab. The Philadelphia Fire Department used its high-rise air supply system to refill uh, cylinders on the 20th floor. Falling glass and debris severed the airline, which is extended from an air compressor vehicle outside the building to the staging area, and the system, the line had to be replaced and reconnected while on scene in the dark. I have a question for the chief here. Um, when they're doing the... Uh 
uh, flanking attacks from the other buildings. Did they go off the standpipes there or did they pump those systems? Did they have similar problems? Because there wasn't mentioned on how old these buildings were. Yeah. Yeah. The, these were, uh, you know, kind of, kind of parallel buildings, uh, just across the street. So there were maybe, I guess it was close to a hundred feet between them. And one of my good friends, Jerry Grover, I remember we, we were talking about it. He said, never in my life did I imagine that I would get on the elevator in an office building with a portable deluge set with enough hose to connect to the, the standpipe system on the 20 something floor, set it up and break a window to shoot a stream across the street into another building. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Like you, that would never figure in your mind. Yeah, and th there's Not a good picture, book. and there's a good picture in the report of uh, of the deck gun sitting on a desk or something, you know, tied yeah. to the window frame. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that that one's not in the book. <laughs> yeah. When things go wrong uh, on a scale as large as one Meridian Plaza, safety becomes an overriding concern. The firefighters were continually confronted with an unusual danger caused by multiple system failures during the incident. The deaths of three firefighters and the critical situation faced by the rescue team that was searching for them are clear evidence that the danger level and difficulties managing operations in a dark, smoke-filled high-rise building. A perimeter was set up around the building to prevent injuries from falling glass and stone panels, but it was necessary for personnel to cross this zone to enter and exit the building to maintain and to maintain the hose lines connected to the standpipes and the airline. One firefighter was seriously injured when struck by falling debris while tending the hose lines. In addition, all supplies and equipment needed inside the building had to cross the safety perimeter at some point. Many firefighters working inside the building were treated for minor injuries, fatigue during the fire. Rest and rehab sectors contributed to firefighter safety, improving mental and physical stamina. And a medical triage area was also established on the 20th floor. The physical and mental demands on personnel were extraordinary. And that is just such an understatement when we're reading it here. You have no, uh, absolutely no concept. Uh, in addition to managing physical safety of personnel, emotional and psychological well-being were considered. They activated their critical incident stress debriefing program and relieved first and second due alarm companies as soon as discovering that the crew of Engine 11 had uh, succumbed on the 28th floor. More than 90 firefighters were debriefed on site and, uh, uh, and the, and the uh, deceased firefighters were evacuated. The uh, CS, CISD involvement continued after the fire due to the tremendous impact on the loss and the risk to hundreds of firefighters that were involved in the incident. The most courageous safety decision occurred when the fire commissioner, Roger Alshafer, ordered the cessation of interior firefighting efforts evacuated the building due to the danger of structural collapse. Firefighters did not re-enter the structure until the fire had been controlled by the automatic sprinklers on the 30th floor and burned out all available fuels on the lower fire-involved floors. One Meridian Plaza construction began in 68. The city of Philadelphia was enforcing the 1949 building code at the time. This code was of local origin and contained minor amendments that had been incorporated since its enactment. The building code had no distinction between high-rise and other buildings. Therefore, no special high-rise construction features were required. General focus of the code was to provide a high degree of fire-resistive construction 
rather than relying on sprinkler protection or compartmentation. As a result of this fire, they now adopted uh, an ordinance requiring all high-rise buildings to be protected by automatic sprinklers in 1997. We're still fighting for this in places like Hawaii and, and a lot of cities where there's lots of residential yeah. high-rises, and they still they still can't get this passed. And yet we know this is not only for the residents but for the firefighters. Yeah. 1981, they changed the building code. Uh, special fire protection features in high-rise buildings, fire alarm systems with smoke detectors in elevator lobbies, entrances, exit stairways, return air plenums, corridors, and other common or public areas. Stairway identification signs. I mean, this is a basic principle, is identification of the floor level in each stairway, which is probably how these guys ran into trouble getting out on the floor. They didn't know where they were is because they weren't marked. Uh, and the top and bottom of the stairways, roof access, etc. Stairway re-entry to permit occupants to retreat from stairways compromised by smoke or fire to return to, to tenant spaces in the event doors were locked from the stairway side for security. Provisions had to be made to unlock doors automatically upon activation of fire alarm system. They issued in 1984, they had issued a violation of, to the owners of this building requiring compliance with these amendments. They later granted the owners a variance, permit stairways, doors to be locked, provided that they're unlocked every third floor. So, I mean, that means you can't get, that's, and third, let's, these floors are tall between floors. This is a long ways, right? Lessons learned. Perhaps the most striking lesson to be learned from one Meridian high-rise fire is that what can happen when everything goes wrong? Major failures occurred in all, nearly all fire protection systems. Each of these failures helped produce a disaster. The responsibility for allowing these circumstances to transpire can be widely shared even by those not directly associated with the events on February 23, 1991. Uh, automatic sprinklers should be the standard level of protection in high-rise buildings. Um, you know, property conservation life safety record of sprinklers is exemplary, particularly in high-rise buildings. Even with effective compartmentation, a significant fire may endanger the occupants and require a major commitment of fire suppression personnel and equipment. Automatic sprinklers are justified by concerns about firefighter safety and public protection effectiveness. The measures such as life safety and property conservation. And I just want to you know, emphasize on that here. Long, uh, the property protection value is long recognized, but it's the, the justifying of it for the fire department that is both the value of sprinklers as a means of protecting firefighters has rarely been discussed. Members of the fire service promote automatic sprinklers for, if for no other reason than to protect themselves. Communities need to be made aware of the costs that they defer by paid, maybe paid by firefighters in terms of their safety. It's above and beyond potential loss to citizens and businesses that it's usually considered. As a study by Charles Jenkins Jennings reports that firefighter injury rate in non-sprinkler buildings is seven times higher than in comparable buildings with automatic sprinklers. High-rise sprinklers beat compartmentation hands down. And they're learning this, Grenfell Tower was another one, they're learning this in Britain with a whole bunch of other buildings because they have relied and still rely to this day on compartmentation and it doesn't work. It just, there's, there's too many variables on the compartmentation. Code assumptions about fire department standpipe tactics proved invalid. One of the principal code assumptions affecting fire department operations at One Meridian Plaza concerned this insulation of standpipe pressure-reducing valves. 
The rationale for PRVs is a concern that firefighters would be exposed to dangerous operating pressures and forces if they connected hose lines to near the base of the standpipe riser, particularly those supplied by stationary fire pumps. This is a well-founded concern, but built upon the assumption that fire departments use two and a half inch attack lines and straight bore nozzles to attack fires from standpipes. That would be a lot of pressure on a smooth bore at 120 pounds or so. But in this day, most departments use inch and three quarter hose, two inch hose with fog nozzles for interior attack. This is changing. We're going back, but you've got a valve. You can control it. Um, yeah. You know, there's a valve on the standpipe. It doesn't have to be open all the way. In the aftermath of this incident, NFPA Technical Committee on Standpipe pursues a complete revision of NFPA 1949, which includes revisions for fire protection systems. And NFPA 25 requires a flow test at five-year intervals to verify proper insulation and adjustment, which these pressure-reducing valves were not properly adjusted. Yes, and, and I just want to add to the... Uh, uh, stand pipe connection when you said there's a valve and we can dial it up and down you do need a gate and a, a, val a, a gauge because without yeah. a gauge you're just guessing and if you use a gated Y you have a lever to try to kind of like spitball it's basically like you, I put you on the pump panel and cover your intake and discharge pressure and you just go by feeling um, and there's a lot of high rise kits still to this day that don't have two and a half inch or the new two inch lines or whatever. They don't have a uh, smooth bore and they don't have a means of a gate that we can open and close and a gauge to actually set the pressure accordingly. It, it's still a thing which is scary because this, this change came a long time ago and there's still departments that never heard about PRVs and uh, pressure reducing devices and all this stuff. So it's, it's, it's kind of scary and kind of sad. So I hope this, this podcast will at least make some people curious as to what is expected from us. There, were, there was a lot of talk after this fire on both sides. The NFPA 14 committee, which was the committee on standpipes, was you know sort of locked locked into the early 1960s uh, and you know and not not keeping up with what was going on. And fire departments had. You know, adopted uh, ancient three-quarter lines and automatic nozzles um, without giving much thought to, to how they would work with uh, with standpipe systems because 99% of the time we were using them off of our pumpers. But we took the same thing into uh, into buildings. So there was an awful lot of talk. I can't remember how many conversations and and meetings I was involved in after this you know type, sort of connecting the dots for for different people yeah well like like you said in the report here you know the inconsistency between fire department tactics and design criteria you know little had changed uh, stuck in the 60s like you said and then the yeah. changes to lightweight hose and automatic nozzles uh then the pressure reducing valves it says in here that actually uh you know the the hose outlets on the 22nd floor of meridian plaza adjusted as reported at the time of the fire, would have produced nozzle pressures of approximately 40 PSI, which is yeah. insufficient for a straight stream device and dangerously inadequate for a fog nozzle, automatic or not. I mean, 40 PSI yeah. is low. Um, yeah, and, 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 you know, those pressure-reducing valves, 
I guess were introduced in the 70s, but they were still kind of a novelty. And nobody had a lot of experience installing them uh, or operating with them. And the particular model that they were using, I think, came from Italy. Um, and, you know, the, the whole technology was, was different. So, so even the installers were kind of mystified by, you know, how do you, how does, how's this thing supposed to work? Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, the next one was pre-fire planning and the lessons learned, of course, it's a critical, essential, uh, function, uh, purpose of conducting pre-fire plans to gather information about the buildings. Obviously, uh, what was the comment on that, uh, Chief? Were they not really familiar with it? You know, they they had basic familiarity with the building, but not details. You talked about SOGs, uh, training programs for fire and high-rise buildings. And that's a tough one, right? You can't really practice in them because they're occupied. How do we train adequately for that? We've got a four-story fire training tower. But, you know, you have to emulate what it's going to be like. Dirk, do you have any comments on that? You've done some of that and, and, and Doug. Yeah, I, I think we're suffering from training scars because when we practice high-rise operations in, in, a, in a tower or a, uh, something like a training facility, we usually have positive control from the pump up up the pipe and then we can you know, calculate, pump breaking, calculate the pressure that's required for our whole setup and Everything goes smooth. Nobody has problems with flow. Everything is good. And then we roll up to these uh, fire pump driven fire suppression systems that don't even allow us to put pressure into the system because there's check valves. So we would have to figure out what is the pressure that the pump produces or the next step would be shutting off the fire pump in the basement and then taking positive control. And I think it's it's a training scar. Like everybody practiced this. It's kind of like the flash cam we were talking about when we are just pencil, 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 right? And this is how we fight fires. It's like, no, it's it's not. So we have to we I think we have to communicate better what it entails to actually pump a high-rise FDC. Yeah, that that's my take on it. And I think it's one of those many, many training scars we we get and uh, we have to overcome that's one component and it's an important component but there are a whole bunch of components that have to come together to to fight a fire in a high-rise building the whole idea of attack teams and attack stair and evacuation stair and the staging you know level floor and logistics to move stuff up you know there's a lot that that needs to to be understood and to be practiced enough that everybody's ready to to put it into operation and then you get a case like this where even if if you got it all together with you have this cascade of things that go wrong so even the best plan falls apart you know if you if you have a good plan and everybody's well trained and something doesn't work right you can you can focus attention on that and and figure out, you know, you can you can bypass the problem. When everything starts going bad, it's you know it's tough. It's psychologically tough. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And but I mean, people like firefighters are geniuses to come up with solutions too, right? Um, yeah. Especially after the fact. So when I look at New York with the floor below nozzle, 
You know, if yeah. I have the water flow and I can't make the push down the hallway, well, now here's our transitional attack, right? What's now called yeah. transitional, transitional attack. Um, we we have the opposing tip nozzle or cockloft nozzle yeah. that we could use for flanking. Like all these things came from this this strategy uh, in Philadelphia. Yeah. And um, guys in, in New York, tell every time they talk about the high-rise fires, like the elevators will fail. You have to you have to expect it. So when we talk about climbing upstairs and beating up crews, uh, Chief McRae from Denver, he always said, like, keep your coat open. Don't don't have your full PPE on just because you're climbing up the stairs, right? So then set up the staging and relieve, send up crews early so they get rest, right? So, but this is all learned from these incidents and, and from departments that are fighting more high rise fires than the average department, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's super complex, absolutely, and I think a lot of departments don't even want to go there because it entails a lot of training of the command staff, of the firefighters, and not just the theory, but also, as you said, you have to drill on it. You have to actually do it and then see, you know, if, if you don't make mistakes, you will never learn. And if we yeah. don't train to make mistakes, again, you will never learn and that someday you will pay the price, right? Yeah. I think and, uh, a lot of know, firefighters too have uh, they trust the building too much, right? They think, oh, there's sprinklers, we're okay. Oh, there's a fire pump, we doesn't matter. Who we don't need all this extra stuff because the building has all the systems we need, and they don't think about. My line is always like the fire department is there for when things go wrong. If nothing ever went wrong in people's lives, we wouldn't need any fire department. So. Yeah, like we're there to be the backup because we don't have a backup. We're the last line. And and guys need to realize that you can't always trust a fire pump in a building that's 10 or 15 or 30 years old. Because when the, when somebody comes to do a test on it, like we said earlier, all the stuff was tested with no load, right? They turn it on and they go, oh, yeah, it works. It's fine. Well, then 10 minutes later, when it actually has to do something, it doesn't work anymore. And that's why we have to be prepared to overcome these and expect them to fail before we even get there. Yeah. The other thing, too, is the smoke control, right? And now these systems are so automated. They're so complex. How can we be prepared for that when we show up at XYZ building, right? And, uh, and that, that can be really difficult as well. And the whole wind-driven fire thing, you've got this huge chimney uh, that it wasn't even discussed really in this report was what impact the wind had on it. But I guess it didn't matter because you couldn't get the water on it. So I mean, yeah. it's going to do what it's going to do. Yeah. It, it's really interesting because, you know, the, the technology of fire protection engineering has gotten very sophisticated. So we've gotten into, you know, sophisticated smoke control systems. And I, you know, I, I see discussions all the time over, you know, over different ways of, uh, of of creating safe elevator lobbies and whether this kind of, of uh, closure or that kind of closure is better and how much pressure differential could you have from one side to the other. And all of these things are, you know, have been engineered and are being put into modern buildings, but almost always they're being put into modern buildings that are sprinklered and everything. So they don't get tested. It, and there's no base of experience to see whether they really work. 
because they never had the opportunity to work because the damn sprinklers put the fire out. Another item you guys uh, tagged in here was the code enforcement in Philadelphia. The code enforcement was fragmented between the city and the fire department. Yep. The city did conduct regular periodic code enforcement inspections or permits or develop hazard protocols for ensuring inspections conducted by the responsible agency were addressing the critical fire protection problems. I think the generator is, uh, is a prime one there. Yeah, and they had a very strict uh, wall between what uh, permits and licenses was responsible for and what the fire department was responsible for. And it was like, it's almost like the fire department had no business getting into code enforcement in any of these buildings. Yeah, exactly. And I, I see the other one here uh, that you mentioned, the code provisions. Uh, adopted requiring high-rise building owners to retain trained personnel to manage fire protection and life safety code compliance and assist personnel during emergencies. That's one that's been elusive forever is, is you know, the, you're the building owner. You're responsible for the fire protection systems in this building and assisting the agencies that have to deal with the response, right? And that's always a tough one. I see New York City law. I had to throw a New York thing in there. I'm going to make sure we cover that one for Doug. But, you know, uh, each owner to designate a fire safety director, building owner, the responsibilities of this individual for managing the life safety plan during an incident are clearly established in, in, this, in this ordinance. Of course, we had the delayed, uh, delayed response, which is so typical. Uh, you know, automatic fire alarms as if they were real fires. Of course, they didn't, right? Especially in high-rise fires. Building personnel... Uh, did not, uh, you know, did not respond as if it was a fire. They didn't even call a fire hurt. They forgot. You know, finally, the, the bystanders did, and the central alarm company said, these guys aren't getting back to me. I guess I better call the fire department, right? But um, by choosing to investigate and verify the alarm condition, the building engineer nearly lost his life. If not for the ability to communicate with the lobby guard to relay instructions for manually recalling the elevator, this individual would have shared the fate of his counterpart who died in a service elevator at the first interstate bank building in Los Angeles of 1988. Yeah, same thing happened. The ignition source, so we haven't mentioned that yet, was oil-soaked rags in a load, is, is recognized as a hazard. Contractor had been refinishing paneling on the 22nd floor, not carelessly uh, left his oil-soaked cleaning rags unattended and unprotected in a vacant office. Uh, this fire would not have occurred. So. Uh, you know, just uh, it's uh, construction again. We keep getting these. We had that one on the YouTube the last couple of days at the water park under construction in Sweden that blew up. You yeah. Know? We're having so many yeah. construction fires. Extra vigilance during construction, demolition, alteration, or repair activities. The, uh, earlier in the day, a building engineer had become aware of an unusual odor on the 22nd floor. He associated it with the refinishing operations which were underway there. When the alarm system activated later that evening, he first believed solvent vapors had activated a smoke detector, which is why they didn't treat it as a fire. And then there's a whole bunch on electrical systems here um, because you had a guy on the team that was electrical, which is good, but it's true, you know. They, they even had to, what they say, transformers that provided power to the adjacent buildings were installed in the basement of One Meridian Plaza. They had to shut them down due to the water in the basement resulting in power losses to the buildings adjacent as well. Uh, so the conclusion, the ultimate message delivered 
by this fire is the proof that automatic sprinklers are the most effective and reliable means at our disposal to protect high-rise buildings. When all other systems failed, automatic sprinklers were successful in controlling this fire. The Philadelphia Fire Department was confronted with an essentially impossible situation and did a commendable job of managing the incident. The loss of three firefighters is a tragedy that will always be remembered by the Philadelphia Fire Department. Analysis of the situation reveals, however, that the toll could have been much worse had it not been for the courage, skill, and experience of this department. Several extremely difficult decisions were made under most severe conditions. This fire will also be remembered for the lessons that it brings with respect to fire protection systems. To work effectively, such systems must be properly designed, installed, and maintained. When those requirements are not satisfied, the result can be devastating, as clearly demonstrated in this incident. And I'd like to add, just because a building is sprinkled doesn't mean it's not burning. Because there's many sprinkler buildings, again, Murphy's Law, something goes wrong, fire pump doesn't work, sprinklers don't work. And then it comes back to maintenance. Maintenance is the most important part of, of these systems. Which is what fire code is. Fire code is inspection of the maintenance. And another factor that I kind of glossed over here that uh, you guys had put in the report, of course, was the inspection before, during, and after construction to verify that penetrations in the fire resistance rated assemblies are properly protected. Voids, poke throughs, horizontal and vertical fire separation that provided the ideal avenues for fire spread during this fire. Openings in the partition and closing electrical equipment on the floor of origin permitted the fire to reach and damage the electrical risers, which plunged firefighters into darkness early in the fire. Stairwell voids permitted smoke to spread in the stairwell, making firefighting operations difficult and exposing the upper floors. Smoke and fire also extended via pipe chases. I, I, I have to recall, we were on a, we were on a, uh, a tour of a, a seniors res complex that was a nursing home on one side and then seniors apartments on the other and we were walking through this and uh, you know fire inspectors have enough building knowledge just to be dangerous and we're walking through the stairways and we're going something's not right this is supposed to be a two-hour rated stairway and i can see floor joists or i can see holes and stuff and so we phoned the building inspector guy over and met him over there and said like this is a, there's something wrong here and yeah, they hadn't done the, the protection correctly at all. And they were applying for a, a, a partial occupancy permit, right? They had to redo a lot of work. But only fortunately that, you know, we're walking through the building yeah. on a tour that we said, this isn't right. I mean, if this thing catches fire, the whole place is going to go. Yeah. How long would it have been like that if you hadn't caught it? It would have been sitting there today. Just like that. Yeah, one of my pet peeves is when we walk through buildings on alarm calls or medical calls, I uh, I tend to kick wedges out of doors. That's the whole, like the, the people that live there, they don't, they want ventilation, they want the doors open, and that is the only thing that keeps the stairwell safe, smoke-free, and prevents the, the smoke spread, right? And smoke, again, smoke is, is the killer number one. It's not the fire. That's why departments like FDNY, they send... The first truck company above the fire to search because it's the most dangerous uh, part of the building, always above the fire. So yeah, I, I like doing that, just kicking out those uh, door watches. I don't take them home because that would be theft. But you're retired, so <laughs> I got, I got a, we got a phone call one time. The chief got a phone call from a school from the principal. He says uh, your guy was here doing his inspection there this week, and uh, 
we had bought nice steel door wedges that can hold the doors open because they're hard to hold open in a big commercial <laughs> door. And he says he took them all with him. Those are our wedges. Yeah. We want them back. And the chief says, no, you can't have those. Those doors have to be closed at all times, you know. And uh, she yeah. says, well, good for you. you know, but you're right. It's just crazy. It's funny that they bought steel wedges because they might be burning up when if they wouldn't, right? So that's right. Yeah. at least they, they might go. They might fail. <laughs> on the floor, probably not. But yeah. <laughs> Great. Good show there. Anything to add there, Chief, about this fire and the changes it, it brought on around North America? It provoked an awful lot of discussion. Uh, you know, it was so prominent um, that you know, everybody was aware of it and everybody was talking about it. And it did prompt a lot of attention to, you know, to loose ends and codes. And, you know, the, mo the, the ball was already in play to require sprinklers, but this was another, another nail in the coffin to say, you know, we've got to sprinkler existing high-rise buildings as well as new high-rise buildings. Um, so it was... Uh, you know, it, it was one of the real landmark fires. And it, it always struck me as kind of ironic that that building sat there for over 10 years, boarded up, because nobody could decide what to do with it, whether it could be fixed or it had to be torn down. And finally, it was demolished. And then, then it sat as a vacant lot for another five years, I guess. So there's a new building there now. But uh, I remember for for years, whenever I was in Philadelphia, I'd drive by and say, yeah, still there. Wow. Interesting. Even the demolishing phase, like we look at the uh, Deutsche Bank uh, fire in New York, that was oh. a building about to be demolished. And then, again, all the systems were shut off. And the fire department oh, was, was faced with basically the same problems that Philadelphia had, right? Water supply. Oh. Like, so The same kind of situation, but so ugly in every respect yeah we got to do that one right Doug? you're gonna you, you started a script for that one deutsche bank oh, yeah man. boy that was yeah were you involved in the investigation there chief <laughs> i was i wasn't involved in the investigation but i i knew the building and I, you know i would i had been to the trade center site and and you know i knew the building before <laughs> And I saw the building after, and uh, and then when it happened, I knew some of the chiefs who were directly involved. And it just it just happened that we had a meeting somewhere the week after, so I I got to talk to them like a week after, and got the you know the real the real lowdown on on what happened from the guys who experienced it. And oh, they good, were just, yeah. you know the same kind of feeling like. Right. This can't happen to us. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have to get you in for that one, too. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to another Emergency Traffic Podcast. We appreciate your interest and hope that you find these uh, episodes interesting and informative. Give us a star, a like, a thumbs up on the app that you use to listen. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast Traffic, on our Facebook page, Emergency Traffic Podcast. You can email us at emergencytrafficpodcast at gmail.com. Let's be safe out there. Any final words from my friends? Be safe. Stay warm if you're still in Canada. Oh, yeah, from Florida. It is warm here. This has been a good winter. My final words are stay low and go. Yeah. yeah.
That's why I usually say, so I say, expect fire, expect victims. Stay alert. Yes, that's right. Okay, thanks, everyone. Bye. Okay, bye.